0: Hello, I'm Neil Fraser, president of Medtronic Canada, and welcome back to the Next 100 podcast. And I'm here with the incomparable Zaina Kayat, vice president now at Teladoc Health Canada and former future strategist at St. Elizabeth Health. She's an expert on how innovation and technology are changing the game in home care. On today's episode, we'll discuss the path healthcare in Canada needs to take so patients can be more supported than ever before. Zena, uh, I've recently learned that you started your career actually with the Banting and Best uh, Institute uh, at the University of Toronto, um, and that you did in fact, a PhD uh, in diabetes. Um, where you looked at the effects of insulin, studied its role in the physiology of patients. So here we are, uh, it's 100 years since the discovery of insulin. How do you reflect on uh, where we are with diabetes care and then ultimately with with uh, patient care in Canada.
1: I was reflecting on that with the, the theme of this podcast, and I'll never forget. You know, I'm a, a, a Catholic girl, daughter of immigrants, is my first time leaving home to go to Toronto to do my PhD in 96. And uh, literally my first week, September of 96, was the celebration of the 75th anniversary at the time of the discovery of insulin at the University of Toronto, and the world's experts all came to Toronto, like the best researchers in the world and practitioners in, in diabetes and insulin 25 years later. And wow, how things have changed from, you know, yes, we continue to do research and advanced technology around insulin itself, you know, getting it to people, you know, different dosing, different ways, w- ways of storing, ways of measuring, but wow, have we really evolved to surround ourselves around the person who has diabetes, maybe stopping it from happening in the first place, reversing it, we now talk about, uh, or managing it in a very different way uh, and you know, with these multiple modalities. So I, I think uh, we're on a pretty good trajectory. You
0: are known as a futurist, and in fact, that was part of your, your title when you were with St. Elizabeth Health. What, what do you see in the future for um, diabetes care, and for the care of of diabetic patients?
1: So, I mean, first, I'm an applied futurist, so to be clear, I don't just pontificate about the future, but my job was to, you know, see those signals and trends and then translate them into practices, processes, policies, procedures. If I look at, you know, somebody, you know, with whether it's type 1 or type 2 diabetes, I would say the future of Healthcare for them is the same as the future of healthcare for everybody, and you know, kind of collectively, I I characterize it around really six big areas. You know, the first will be uh, a shift in timing from being reactive and waiting for the symptom or some seeing something that can be measured to much more proactive and eventually predictive. Uh, the second is around, you know, the precision, the the intelligence, the personalization, if you will, of how healthcare is delivered. Uh, including technologies, you know, as much as we love science and R&D, and it's done amazing things, it's still pretty crude. We still largely have analog approaches and it's one size fits all. So that will be precise, intelligent, personalized kind of end of one. The third is the location or the channel through which patients will access the services and the products and the tech they need. A uh, very, very facility based right now, very institution centered that will be, you know, shift to what I call care anywhere, whether it's your car, your school, your workplace, your house, you know, waiting in line at the airport. It doesn't matter. Uh, you don't need to go to the care. The care will follow you. Uh, the fourth is around the duration, you know, by which we can see data about what's going on with your body and your life. Uh, because we timeshare healthcare. care, it's been episodic and intermittent. You know, I would submit the entire medical device industry, the pharma industry, are intermittent industries, they're, they're there for a little slice of your life um, and your episode and, uh, and nobody will be able to stay in business that way. So that will shift to being continuous uh, and really much more integrated, much more team, the fifth is a power shift uh, in who makes decisions about one's health and care from v- a very paternalistic kind of provider-focused power dynamic to uh, at least shared decision-making. So I call that people-powered healthcare. And then finally, of course, which you know well, is a shift in, in what we pay for and what you know we consider value. And we've largely been paying for stuff, for activities, for visits, for procedures, for equipment, for beds, uh, for pills, and you know, being able to finally pay for the results. So, in the context of a diabetic's life, the result is you know they're living the life they want, <laughs> with the health that they want, and the people who touch that get paid for helping achieve that goal.
0: You know, as as you know, uh, we've long been a proponent of this value based healthcare, which means that that instead of selling stuff, as you say. That we would underwrite the outcome and say, look, if it works for you, that uh, we would be rewarded for that, and that actually brings me, um, you, know, you know, to another area of great interest to yours, which is the, the health system in Holland. You were so excited about that that you went and actually worked uh, for reshape health in uh, Nijmegen, uh, and and uh, I've always observed that uh, Holland as a healthcare system is very advanced. Uh, in that they are able to actually uh, focus on outcomes uh, of populations and they reward companies like ours for uh, managing uh, cohorts of patients with specific conditions such as type 1 diabetes for example. So thinking about Canada, how do we get Canada to be more like Holland?
1: I think there's a culture in this country and I think it goes back to the Dutch East India company which I believe you know if you um, you know if you took inflation to today, they're a bigger company than Apple. I think there is one piece of this kind of culture and mindset and belief that we can be bigger and better. And when you've got people galvanized around a bigger vision for your own country, uh, a lot of the nitpicking producer interests you know, really ego, I think goes away. And I don't think we're there yet in Canada. And I'm sure you see this more than me. You know, we still have fiefdoms and chiefdoms and, you know, not invented here across provinces. And we just can't afford that across our big, huge floppy geography to think that way. So I think that's one, is a mindset. I think the other though is... um, I'm finding that more and more the people who, you know, touch a lot of the resources and the decision making about those resources are looking for new answers. I think we're kind of done with the old tools to try to manage healthcare and keep it sustainable. So I think there's just been a renaissance of interest in, you know, different ways of payment and I think Medtronic has brought a lot of that infrastructure frankly to this country, uh, innovation as a methodology capacity building around innovation, new mindsets, uh, new uh, capabilities, all those things around creating the new. So I think we're getting there and frankly, we kind of have no choice. I think the burning platform is a lot hotter <laughs> uh, than it was even you know two years ago.
0: I was I was really uh, intrigued around your definition of innovation because we talk so much about innovation and in healthcare um and and uh, frankly, we're disappointed uh, that not a great deal of it uh, happens, but uh, maybe maybe your uh, definition would be helpful uh, to talk about it this time. To
1: say you're disappointed that innovation doesn't happen, you're actually it's a cognitive disconnect because the you know the true definition you know any textbook anywhere in the world. So the Canadian Council of Academies I think has the most simple elegant one, not just in healthcare, uh, you know, new or better things that create value right? So what are the key words, new or better? That's NOVA, right? That's the root word of innovation uh, from, yeah, I think, the 16th century. Uh, but it's got to create value, which means it's adopted at scale, and you can measurably uh, know that something was actually better than whatever the, the, the previous status quo was. And in the medicine context, that's called the standard of care. So newer, better over the standard of care, uh, but measurably better. And I often say it's 5X better, 5X either lower cost, 5X better clinical outcomes, a 5x better patient and family experience or 5x better staff experience. Of course, the most brilliant innovations combine those, you know, they can have better outcomes and lower cost and a better experience. That's true innovation. It has to be adopted at scale. And scale is not a hundred percent. It's not even 70%, Neil. It's like 35%. It's a third way up the adoption curve. Once you kind of get there, you can flip over. So, so, you know, what most people call innovation, I find in healthcare, is actually just invention. It's the tech or the new care model or the new whatever. But the algebra is invention plus adoption equals innovation. That's the algebra of innovation.
0: Well, let's talk about adoption because that that really seems to be where uh, where our issue is. I, I agree with you that um, that that uh, you know there's lots of uh, great new technologies and processes and, and ideas, but we don't seem to adopt them, uh, and not nearly as readily as Holland does or, or other, uh, you know, leading uh, health economies. Um, you, you know that the, confer- the conference board uh, has, has long stated that, you know, Canada's a leader in research, but we're a laggard in innovation. And um, I think it's on the adoption side, but what do we need to do Uh, about adoption in Canada.
1: Countries like the UK and, you know, big health systems like Kaiser Permanente, if the evidence shows objectively that the new thing, whatever it is, uh, is better than whatever the standard of care was, is transparently for the public, they have to adopt. You know, you can't invest in health technology assessment and all the, you know, public taxpayer money to, you know, objectively determine is there economic value and clinical value from the new thing um, to, you know, make the case for therefore displacing the old. You can't just do that, publish, and say, yeah, this is really good for patients in the health system, Uh, and then, you know, it's up to you, province, to decide if you want to adopt. So I think that's one is, like, make it non-negotiable that if the evidence shows you are accountable to the public to adopt. Two is... Uh, You know, I often say, although we love the word innovation and it's so obviously great for everybody, in true innovation, when it's adopted at scale, remember, this is something is 5X or more better than the standard of care. Well, that standard of care, you know, the, the status quo, whatever the current thing is, has probably been the dominant practice for, I don't know, 10, 20, 150 years not very easy to take that away from the producer interests who have you know benefited really nicely from whatever that is. Um, so patients usually always win when there's health innovation, but the people around the patient will lose. Somebody gains and somebody loses. And so I think that's a big part of it is untangling and dismantling the old, you know, we call this creative destruction, right? It's not just destruction. It's creatively destroying and putting it back together, which means value pools have to shift. What happens is instead of adding on yet the other new thing on top of the old and one more on top of the old, it's easier just to not let new things in. (laughs) You know what I mean? That's my summary of the state of the state in simple terms.
0: Actually, it's very interesting when I think going back to diabetes, when I think of the whole evolution of, uh, you know, insulin management. I'm going to go out on a limb and say adolescent females who did not enjoy injecting themselves with insulin multiple times a day and wanted a solution that was discreet, that was portable. But ultimately, uh, you know, it's really driven by patients. And actually later the evidence came through that demonstrated, you know, less hypoglycemic events you know, less visits to uh, emergency uh, for for these children, um, and and ultimately improved uh, you know protection from you know from the long term effects of diabetes. Really, it was about patient power, uh, and and the funding really came as an intru- as an instrument to provide equity uh, for all patients because not all could afford this technology in the early days. And now we have a hundred percent of governments now do fund insulin pumps at some level. um and and now they're starting to fund continuous glucose monitoring. I think that's an example uh, that that we need in healthcare of how things can be driven from patients first. Uh, and and uh, and the whole system wakes up uh, to to understand that this in fact is one of those 5X uh, improvements.
1: 100%, I mean, just to take the insulin story to the next level further, um, you know, 3D bioprinted insulin is now a thing. And that was started in the US because the, the price of, you know, a month's supply of insulin for a lot of families, like they're either gonna not eat, go bankrupt, or ration their insulin for their child or for themselves, Well, that's not an option. And so a group of citizen hackers got together and figured out how to get literally the software code to 3d print insulin. And, you know, I think they're now on the market. So you're, you've now disrupted, you know, an entire universe of machinery, uh, because, you know, you know, the cost was the driver there, right. Not access or equity or anything, you know, Is that going to really happen at scale? I don't know, Neil, but I'm just saying that example plus your glucose, um, your insulin pump example, multiply that by thousands and thousands and thousands of patients or parents of children or spouses or whoever who have all the means of production. They have all the data and the friction to find each other in the world and put their brains together is kind of gone, right? Right. This is the citizen hacker movement, and and I don't think anyone has their head around what that's going to do.
0: So so here we are in Canada. We um, we discovered insulin a hundred years ago. Um, you know it it still is not available uh, to everybody that needs it. Um, the disease diabetes uh, continues to grow. Uh, you know in its uh, prevalence. Um, you know more recently we. Um, we invented the pacemaker at the University of Toronto. Um, you know, both of these inventions benefited other jurisdictions more than than the inventors. So we, you know, we true to form in Canada, we did the invention, and we allowed others to uh, ass- essentially exploit the innovation involved and take it, it global. Do you think there's hope for an industry in Canada? Uh, you know, based on, you know, a wealth of discovery uh, that an industry could develop here that would become a uh, world-beating industry?
1: I think there is. The one that I think took the lessons from the insulin and the pacemaker story and uh, kind of designed for uh, commercialization from the beginning has been the stem cell industry. So, you know, we have, you know, for commercialization of regenerative medicine and all the cellular-type therapies And to some extent, mRNA-type vaccines is a subset of that, in my opinion. I actually think the way they've been doing things uh, so that the invention here that starts with the science, but then, of course, all of the process around how do you get these things into human bodies, you know, well beyond the science you know, to be a globally competitive center for the world. So I I think there's something there. Uh, And I also think, you know, the investments in every province, and I think Ontario was probably the leader right at Mars, right where, you know, insulin was given to the first child 100 years ago uh, in the Heritage Center, uh, is so we don't do that again, right? I think we now can go toe-to-toe in terms of the infrastructure to take science, to commercialize it, Sell it around the world and in our own backyard and bring all the benefits of that economic gain, you know, and flow it back into our own um, tax base, if you will, that ultimately then funds public goods. So I think we're okay. I don't think we're going to have that problem again, uh, but I will say not adapting your made here inventions in your own backyard when the rest of the world absolutely is salivating to have have them seems very odd to me. <laughs> You know, you'd think your home country should be your first adopter. Um, so that's a bit of a disconnect that we still need to work through, and I think it's linked to our earlier discussion about why Canadian health systems struggle with adoption.
0: I, I agree with you. I, I think I think it is the same phenomenon that that uh, you know whether whether in, invented locally or not, um, the demand for uh, for innovation here is very weak um, compared to other jurisdictions. And uh, that, I think, does correlate with the Commonwealth Fund survey that shows us uh, as being behind in things like efficiency, uh, in in uh, equity, uh, in, in uh, quality. All of these things, I think, could be fixed uh, by more of an adoption of innovation. I'd like to, uh, I'd like to thank you, uh, Zaina. It's been absolutely fascinating. And, and uh, you're full of amazing insights um, that uh, that just resonate I'm sure with people that are listening so so thank you very much for your contributions today. This has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much and and uh, have a wonderful day
1: Thanks Neil that was a lot of fun.